0: Hello, this is Dr. Paul Cottrell, and I'm going to be talking about the book from Richard Werner, Dr. Werner, on Princes of the Yen, Japanese Central Banks and the Transformation of the Economy. I finished reading the book, so I'm going to do two lectures here. One is going to be on the bulk of the book, and then he has an appendix that's dealing with monetary economics um, that I'll do in another lecture which will be a little bit more of a scholarly lecture um, because it goes into some mathematics of monetary policy. So this is going to be probably about an hour, hour and a half lecture maybe. I'll try to make it as fast as possible. So in the first chapter, it's titled uh, The Japanese Lesson, and he's talking about... Kind of a little bit of an overview of the Japanese economy. And um, right after World War II, um, even a little bit before World War II, where it was the, the, what he calls the war economy. And the war economy is basically, um, during the, the Zaibatsu days, Japan, pre-war, was actually very capitalistic. And they had a lot of shareholder rights and the economy was very much like the the United States but when they were starting to ramp up and moved more towards a war economy the ministry of finance was starting to erode the the powers of the zaibatsu's and was doing more of a controlled economy whereby the ministry of finance would say what sectors would would be producing what and um the b o j the Bank of Japan would actually be funding through through loans into those sectors to make sure that they they were producing they had the the funds to produce so it was a very structured economy and then they lose the war the United States comes in does the reconstruction but what's interesting is is that the war economy the war economy was maintained during that reconstruction period and then beyond so the basically the idea is what's the history of the BOJ and the battle between the Ministry of Finance so and then he talks a little bit about how the system the war economy was really um, was a model from, from Hitler's, um, banking system and, uh, economic system. So it was almost, they were, they were using that model. The Japanese were using in their war economy model similar to what Hitler was using. So in chapter two, the total war economy, the, um, the idea, he goes into more detail, about the zaibatsus were the shareholders, there were a lot of shareholder rights. They didn't want to invest in to new production, new businesses, um, and th- they were more uh, focused on net income, dividend payments. And so the war economy comes in, and they start to try to erode the the actual rights of the zaibatsus and then after the war, they kept that mechanism in place, and they erode even further the rights of the of the uh of the capitalist class and what's interesting is is that when during this time period during the war. The Japanese are starting to lose ground near the end, right? And the United States is starting to develop the atomic atomic bomb. About uh, mid mid nineteen forty five, I think it was. Hitler falls, or I guess it's April. Maybe I mean, it was April. Um, Hitler falls in Europe, and then the the peace is starting in in Potsdam is starting to take hold, and what how the European nations are going to be divided up between the Western powers and, and Russia. And Truman was wanting to have Stalin help with like a two-front war on Japan. This is right before Truman gets word that you know that we actually can detonate a nuclear weapon. Once we find out that we can detonated nuclear weapon, Truman actually uh changes his tune with Russia and goes um and, and, and is a little bit more dictatorial, a little bit more uh less conciliatory. As as Stalin is moving closer to Japan, moving in into Manchuria and and um the the islands above above um, Hokkaido, the Japanese were worried that Stalin would actually cut stalin 's army the Red Army would actually come in and actually take over hokkaido and 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 um, and force a surrender on the Japanese and they would probably kill the emperor so internally the the Japanese were actually wanting to have um, some sort of uh, surrender to the United States before we even dropped the the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb. So modern modern historians are questioning the 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 thought that we dropped the bomb to 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 hasten the war the ending of the war and to reduce American casualties. Um, that might be true but modern historians put in this change of heart after the, you know, after the deal in in Europe to, to um, decide which countries are going to be controlled by which countries after the war, the Western powers versus the, the Russian power. Truman changes his tune, and the the thought was is that because we have this weapon we need to we need to detonate it one to see what the, the destruction was we didn't understand the radiation effect the total radiation effects on humans were um, so it was almost like to show the Russians that we have we have power over them, and that they they can't um, they have to think twice about. Um, solidifying their power in the satellite uh, satellite nations in, in Europe. So we dropped the bomb. Japan hasn't surrendered yet, but there's documents internally in Japan where they were actually wanting to surrender um, because they were afraid of the encroachment of Stalin and the loss of and the actual killing of, of the, the taking over of kaido and the, the loss of the Emperor, the death of the Emperor, versus with the United States, we would have been a little bit more, um, open-minded with the, the Emperor staying in power or staying, you know, as a figurehead and, uh, a rebuilding of of Japan, as long as the United States had that as, a, as some sort of base, especially in Okinawa. So the dropping of Hirosh- the Hiroshima bomb, and especially the dropping of the Nagasaki bomb, was really not so much to actually move into a a, a peaceful world, to hasten the end of the war- the war and reduce casualties for the United States and promote peace, was really um, almost the battleground to show hegemonic power onto Russia from the United States perspective. So in this in this war economy, it it um, it uh, they were trying to erode the, the the civil liberties of the capitalist class, the zaibatsus. Um, and when the United States came on board, they actually wrote it even more and gave, gave social social uh, rights and privileges to to landowners, or not landowners but uh, uh, land leasers or, or farmers, and they were afraid that socialism would actually start to take hold during the Reconstruction effort. So the United States was even afraid that Japan would go communistic even though they internally they were afraid that communism would march through Hokkaido right before they res- surrendered so the United States decides to actually do CIA um, operations to prop up the LDP and I have in another lecture I talk about this but basically what is happening is is that the United States is trying to keep socialism out of Japan, and one mechanism to do that is to actually reduce in some ways uh, capitalistic society to keep the people somewhat in harmony um, as it's going through its reconstruction effort now. Um, Now the chapter does talk about when they were going into Manchuria, um, they were already starting to. Well, you had you had the Great Depression, right? And then the economy worldwide was was terrible, and then um, resources were somewhat strained uh, around the world, and so it ex. It was a catalyst to move forward for the resources in Manchuria and in, in, in um, Korea for Japan to, to take over and then when that happens actually FDR does an embargo on oil and, and other you know, energy um, um, commodities that would slow down their war machine and that is the catalyst that actually is to fight the United States and Pearl Harbor. Um, okay so that's a little bit about the history of what was going on the geopolitical aspects and then this war economy that was that was needed to be able to fund the industries um, and break down s- somewhat of a very capitalistic society that they had in the early uh, part of the century, the late part of the century and the early part, of the, the late part of the um, the 20th century, uh, I'm sorry, the 19th century and um, early on in the 20th century. So, alright, the third chapter is Winning the Peace, and econ- An Economy at War. Um, Okay, so this is when they, they surrender and the United States is in its reconstruction effort and they keep the, the Emperor um, and the BO, the BOJ is still subservient to the MOF, the Ministry of Finance. And the, the Ministry of Finance is really, or you have a Ministry of Finance, you have a Ministry of Education and this is the indoctrination. This is um, part of that CIA control mechanism to actually start to uh, reprogram um, some of the belief systems in the society so and, and it's also trying to prevent socialism from creeping up in, in into Japan so it wasn't really the the main point here is it wasn't really a free economy and there was um, um, the minist- the different ministries. Being some sort of propaganda or control mechanism within the society as it's going through its reconstruction, um, kendo was was banned uh, during this time period uh, because it was too um, warlike. They didn't want to, cho- to teach the children this. Uh, I think kendo it was born. It was banned after the war, and I don't think it it, it was unbanned until like the late '50s, something like that. And then. Um So the bottom line is is that the war economy that they were modeling from Hitler was still in place during this reconstruction effort. Um, and this is during the time period where the LDP, the liberal, the liberal Democratic Party is established, and it was basically a one-party system. It was established in 1955. And it, was, it had close ties. It was, it was funded in the beginning by the, the CIA. And during this time period there were war crimes uh, war, war crime trials. Um, and s- some were killed. I, I don't remember how many out of the, uh, I think it was five, maybe 10, something like that. But there were other lower tier criminals that were allowed to be, um, brought into these different ministries, the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Finance, and so you had actually Class A war criminals that ended up running the MOF and the, the POJ um, to maintain this war economy aspect. Um, and during this time period, because it it, it it had the the war economy wasn't about profits because they killed the Zaibatsus and reduced the really the value of being a shareholder, and became more nationalistic, or, or uh, um, and controlled by the MOF, that in the war all they wanted to do was produce, they just, all they had to do was produce for the war effort. They switch instead of producing planes and a- ammunition, what they did is they started to go into um, products that could be sold overseas and all they cared about was market share so there was kind of like this kamikaze aspect of don't worry about profitability all the credit will be provided by the BOJ, and the economy will be orchestrated by the MOF and you'll be taken care of just get market share and they were able to control the cartels of these different industries by the way they were doing the credit creation through the window guidance system which I'll be talking about later in the book and and they were really focused on the exporting aspects of it so they as this is happening the world is absorbing Japanese goods and paying for them and there is a trade surplus that's growing in Japan during this time period and I remember in the 80s in uh, the early '80s, the whole idea of the dumping product overseas, especially the United States, to destroy the steel industry. So they were producing product at a lower price than the United States could, and dumping that product and trying to reduce market share from the U.S. U.S. companies and Ch- uh, China's. Been doing something similar in other industries. Um, chapter four: The Alchemy of Banking. So, basically, this this goes over what is monetary banking, um, how was credit created, what is money. This is a little bit more, uh, you know, how 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 do we get money velocity and and, and fractional fractional banking and everything so I'll just discuss it really quickly so basically what happens is is that uh, a bank will get a deposit they'll have some sort of reserve requirement to hold and then they can they can loan out the remainder and then there's money velocity and that that kind of compounds somewhat someone Loans ninety percent of something out, they deposit it in a bank, and then that ten percent has to go to the reserve. And so, you know, that ninety, that ninety dollar, that let's say it's a hundred dollars, ninety dollars could be loaned out originally, and then that ninety is deposited in another bank for whatever reason, and. 10% Ten percent of that, nine dollars, so uh, eighty-nine dollars or not eighty-nine dollars, uh, nine dollars minus nine it's uh, eighty-one dollars is not then deposited in another bank and you can see that there's a money velocity that goes goes through this. That's what we're kinda of told in, in in school. But what can happen and does happen in the United States and uh, you can put that whole amount in the federal in the, in the reserve, and be able to borrow um, much more. So these banks can lever up by doing this by putting more in the reserve. So instead of taking the deposit and putting only ten percent, and they put the whole deposit in the federal reserve, and then they can loan out that that amount of money times a multiple. So and then that speeds up the credit creation cycle. Um, other ways is to uh, adjust the interest rates by going into the bond market. If the federal, if the, if the central bank goes in and buys bonds, it's lowering the rate of that area of the curve that they're buying, so they can affect the yield curve um, by their market operations. So if they buy Buy bonds, the rates go down. If they sell bonds, then the rates go up. And when you have, when you buy, when the Federal Reserve buys the bond, it's buying the bond. They're getting the bond, all right. And then money is being deposited into the the central bank system, and so money is created. Money is put in into the system. More money is there. Um, And the opposite is true. If the bank. sells bonds it's pulling money out of the system so they can affect so the theories is you can affect the, you can affect the economy you can slow it down somewhat or speed it up by by adjusting the interest rate um, then you go into the whole quantitative easing aspect where you can adjust the um, the, uh, the yield curve and help liquidity issues or solvency issues within the banking industry or even industries in general to make sure you get out of a deflationary situation. That's why we had QE. Um, Other means is the way the credit creation is created, and that's the main mechanism that the DOJ used, which was they actually targeted, even though they raised or lowered rates, they could actually... Um, fine-tune or magnify the credit creation process through the way they were loaning loaning out through the window guidance system so that's the way banks kind of work so it's really through you know loan demand you know money demand money supply um, money velocity fractional, fractional banking. Chapter five is credit, the economic high command which this is now talking about how banks in Japan and banks in general could use different levers. Um, Like I said, one lever is the interest rate. Another lever is going in and actually doing QE. Um, another big lever is this window guidance system, which basically in Japan what they did was, because the MOF said we need to grow certain interest- industries, let's say the steel industry, let's say there were three main companies in the steel industry, so the, the BOJ would target and tell banks that were tied to the BOJ that you have a quota and you have to loan out X amount to the these three companies that are in the steel industry because that was the requirement from the, the ministry of finance. And as you could see over the years, there would be a lot of corruption that, that starts to take place. And over time, the BOJ starts to want to have more autonomy, um, and get away from the, the war economy and become more open market while the MOF didn't, Want to lose its power. So the BOJ over time wanted autonomy, the MOF wanted complete control of the economy, and there was this battle which leads to the the big bubble that took place in 1991. And and, and basically from then on it's been deflationary economics for Japan for a long time. So um, then then there's uh, and they could control through this window guidance system, telling the banks, you know how to loan out. They're actually what's interesting here is is that at this time, at the during the big growth phase of Japan, and during the reconstruction, the sixties, the seventies, and the eighties, part of the eighties, and then then it gets into speculation. Um, most of the loans were going to GDP. Productive purposes, not non-GDP productive purposes. Now, some of it did, but most of it was P- P- uh, was GDP productive, meaning that there was there was uh, the loans that were out actually grew the economy, and kept money stable. It um, uh, grew the the, the economy it allowed for um, better technologies to be invented Um, and it it allowed for uh, the reduction in in inflation or controlled inflation because more products are created because it was GDP growing and the loans that were going to those companies were reinvested for more, for for higher growth, or more market share. So they were very bullish for all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, part of the 80s. Um, Then chapter six is the first bid for central bank independence. So I think when the BOJ starts to really ask for autonomy. um autonomy. I'm trying to find the law here. During during the 19, 1940s, the BOJ, and even in the 1950s, part of the 1950s, the BOJ was subservient to the MOF. And that was primarily because of the way the war, the war economy was. And then, then as time went on, probably because of what the United States wanted to, to, to open up its market and have more freedom of capital and, and less, um, and less, uh, control by the MOF. The Bank of Japan was requesting a new law. A new uh, Bank of Japan law to be, to be rewritten, but I'm trying to look for the date when they first asked for it. And I don't remember what, what date I, I think it's in the I, I think it's in the early 50s. See if I can find it. So basically, the MOF used the regulations in nineteen forty seven on the provision of funds by financial institutions announced by the MOF. The MOF was basically controlling the BOJ and then... And then there was a, now this is interesting, then Ichimada's views were heard in, in Washington which first instructed uh, SCAP the supreme commander of allies' powers to issue a nine-point economic stabilization program in December 1948 that recommended tighter monetary and fiscal policies. This program was published in Japanese jointly by Ichimada and his assistant Toshihiko Yoshino and even became a bestseller. Washington next sent Joseph Dodge, president of Detroit Bank, to Japan with the, the rank of minister with uh, from February to from February to April of nineteen forty nine as advisor of SCAP. So as time went on through the fifties, the BOJ wanted to have more autonomy. So what do they do? They used the, the, the window guidance system that was instituted during the war to actually control how money is being uh, flowed into these different industries. right? So, as they ask for more autonomy and the, the government isn't willing to give it, or the, the MOF isn't willing to abrogate, What happens is is that the VOJ uses the window guidance system and slowly moves productive loan growth through the window guidance system, and uses the window guidance system and moves it into speculative growth. And this is where you start seeing a little bit more of a recessionary situation or asset prices going higher um, to create bubbles, to create crisis that tries to convince the population that new regulations, new, new structures uh, that nullify some of the powers of the, the MOF uh, should be instituted and therefore autonomy from the BOJ should, should take place. Now you gotta remember that the Federal Reserve in the United States ends up being somewhat autonomous in 1940, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1914, and I think that banks, big, big banking uh, houses, the Rothschilds, J.P. Morgan, um, you know, other, even probably the Bank of England, they wanted a, a, probably a banking system that was more open um, and able to be collaborative and, and, and controlled by an, eliter, uh, an elitist kind of level. At this time, the, the, the United Nations is forming and, you know, starting to get a little bit more power. Um, so it makes sense that there were probably external forces that were there to try to promote the autonomy of the BOJ to reduce some of the socialism that the United States actually promoted in the 40s in Japan um, and to try to have a more a freer market. But over time, they, they didn't want to do that, the, the Japanese didn't want to do that. Um, so there were many different plans. There were a five year plan, a ten year plan that was promoted at the BOJ or, or uh, some individuals at the BOJ and and, um, and uh, to try to you know where the where the uh, economy should go, uh, how to transition or restructure the economy. Eventually, there's a revision in the law. In 1956, the LDP government established an an Investigation Committee to consider changes on the Bank of Japan law. The MOF made sure that the committee included some of its own men. It ended up as a 45-member assembly of academics, bankers, journalists, and representatives from both MOF and BOJ. Meanwhile, in December 1956, the prime minister changed, and with him, the cabinet lineup. Suddenly, Ichimada, was out of a job, and Ikata became finance minister. What happened next was fortunate for Ichimata and the BOJ. In 1957, the economy was heating up so much that a balance of payment crisis loomed. The politicians knew whom to call to tame the economy. Ichimata was suddenly uh, back as a finance minister. Thanks to tight window guidance, the economy slowed. In the end, Ichimani was finance minister for all three Hatayama cabinets, as well as the first cabinet under Kishi. Now, basically, through because the, MO, the MOF wasn't willing to abrogate in the 50s, the BOJ used the window guide system to actually slow the economy. Even if the MOF said lower rates, they would lower rates. They did exactly that. They went into the market, bought bonds, and it pumped money into the system. But they could, they, they could do two things. They could either go in and actually purchase yen um, and extinguish that, that lowering of the rate. Or they could also go in and use the window guidance system and tell the banks don't loan. Or they could go and say, don't loan to these types of industries, and it would start to slow down and and create a a recession. By creating these recessions, it creates a, a panic within the population, and therefore it's a political move for the BOJ to get the law passed because, well, the MOF told the BOJ to lower rates, and they did or they hired rates or whatever. They did what they were told, but they didn't realize that they were doing this window guidance system that was actually trying to force the economy to go into a a recession to be able to get the law changed. So the main point here is is that I think it's not that far-fetched that other central banks actually use its monetary authority to actually create crises that would uh, lend itself to getting more autonomy or create a a, a different government structure than pre-crisis. All right, so now um, then we go into chapter seven and Japan's first bubble economy. So in So basically the peacetime war economy was highly successful in 1950s and 60s Japan grew virtually continuously at double-digit growths. In 1959 the economy expanded 17 percent in real terms while inflation remained modest. In 1960 leading economists made the stunning case that Japan could double its national income within the coming decade. This is similar to what we been hearing about China you know before their crash but but you know that they could have double-digit growth and they could you know uh, they could have uh, you know they're gonna surpass the United States and what do we hear we they had a lot of loan growth that's non GDP raised commodity prices they built all these cities and all of a sudden it's a ghost town so a lot of the growth that took place in in China in the last five years or maybe even 10 years, um, but definitely five years, has been um, a build out with no real demand. And, And because the, the Japanese yen was doing so well because of the um, the growing economy and their trade their trade surplus, the yen was strengthening and there was there there was a back and forth with Japan and the United States on you know, uh, free trade and, 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 you know, and, uh, you know, opening of the markets. And then during the 1970s, the, uh, from early post-war years and until 1971, the major world currencies were pegged to the U.S. dollar. This is amazing, the, the, for Japan the exchange rate was at 360 yen per dollar at that time. And because of the, the growing uh, usage of U.S. currency we couldn't back it all by gold and so nixon actually ends the gold standard you couldn't you couldn't convert it to gold anymore and we completely were a uh, a free floating exchange rate system And because of that it weakened the dollar and then strengthened the yen and the BOJ didn't want to do that, they, and the BOJ and the MOF. And so what they were doing was they were aggressively trying to weaken the yen by printing. And then they, they went and they sold the yen to buy the U.S. dollar to try to control this, this change. And then by December nineteen seventy one it ended up being at three oh eight per dollar instead of three hundred sixty. And they continued to try to weaken the yen. So even back in the seventies there were kind of like this currency war that was going on and probably goes way, way farther than that too. And so, what happened was is this monetary stimulus um that was taking place was overdone, and then the banks were starting to have problems with their loans uh coming in and uh you know and, and not defaulting so what happens is that the b o j ends up the the banks Well, let me rephrase this. There was a lot of money stimulus with credit creation from the BOJ. So the banks were having, were struggling to meet the the high window guidance loan quotas by the BOJ. So they they were going even to subprime borrowers and then eventually what was happening is is that they were actually loaning company money to actually purchase other companies like mergers and acquisitions overseas to, you know, to meet their quota. So what was happening is, is that the beginnings of kind of like a non, um, not necessarily a GD productive loan structure was starting to take place. And then basically in 1973 it became clear that excess credit creation was, be, was being used merely for speculative land and asset transactions to meet their quota. So it was doing really well in the 1940s, 1950s, somewhat in the 60s, in the 60s. but in 1971 you start seeing that, they, that all this credit creation that's, that for the quota system. Was to the point where they couldn't do it internally. They had to go out and they were doing a lot of speculation, non-GDP, and then all of a sudden it starts to, to balloon out asset prices. And the BOJ is complaining that it was the, the Japanese system And also using some politicians to try to move the, the, the law towards the BOJ that the, the economic system was such that you could not grow the Japanese economy without seriously doing restructuring, which meant nullifying a lot of the powers, if not all of the powers of the finance ministry and giving Autonomy to monetary policy of the BOj, but they weren't willing to do that so what happens is, is that the BOJ starts to move towards well you have to you have to um, do fiscal stimulus too um, and it gets the government more in debt um, during this time period so in chapter eight, mysterious money the ebb and flow of the yen. so. I, the bulk of this chapter is talking about, um, base, it's, and it's not a big chapter, it's a short chapter, but basically the idea that you have uh, intervention in the market. The BOJ is going in the market and maybe lowering rates or hiring rates, but if they're lowering rates because of of some recessionary condition, they're going in and they're stimulating the economy by buying bonds. But what they... And usually when you do that, you would weaken the N, um and then you would be able to export more. Well, the BOJ could go in and actually tighten the N, strengthen the N by market operations um, on top of tightening the window guidance or moving the window guidance into more speculation. so there were extinguishing policies that were happening in the BOJ to kind of slow down the economy to be able to create the crisis to allow for the MOF to lose to lose their their uh, power so chapter 9 the great yen illusion the credit the credit bubble and bust so the mysterious land prices so this is during the 80s the, the big heyday where land prices were extremely expensive. You know, everyone was told in, in the United States the Japanese were going to take over the United States in terms of economic power um, and their their uh, system was far superior than ours and blah blah blah. But, but what ends up happening is that it wasn't really a free market and it wasn't an open market and it was somewhat it, w- it was a very controlled uh, monetary system. And the, the you know the big growth in the 80s was actually due to speculation in loans that could have been controlled by the, B- the, the, the BOJ but it didn't want to. It wanted to create the crisis to be able to get the autonomy from the MLF. So this chart here is showing bank lending to the real estate sector and land prices and so you have real estate lending in the lighter curve and in the darker curve you have commercial land price in the six major cities. Um, So there is some sort of co-movement there you can see that in the eighties um, real estate lending you know really took off, and because of the real estate lending, it also brings the actual commercial land price up and when lending goes down, then the commercial real estate starts to go down so. There is there is a lag effect as lending goes up, then it starts to move the the price prices up as lending starts to go down, then the price starts to go down, and then when lending starts to rise again, then you know then it then land then if lending starts to go up then the, the land prices will start to go up. But what's interesting here is, is that in this chart, the eighties, the lending increased and the commercial prices increased. But if you look at lending actually reduces in the nineties, the all through the nineties and you have somewhat suppressed land prices, um, throughout the whole, the whole decade. Now credit creation used for GDP transactions and nominal GDP in Japan. So you have, you have and um, the dark line credit and on the kind of like the, the bubble line you have nominal GDP. And here you can see that for good loans, good credit creation, that there is some, there's a tight fit with actual non, non, uh, a tight fit to nominal GDP. And you can see here that in the 90s, throughout the 90s, nominal GDP is is going down, but so is the credit creation for GDP uh, transactions. And in the 80s, you had somewhat volatile uh, GDP um, but like 83 to eighty eighty six, you had credit creation so it did increase the GDP and then when you started to reduce in 86 to 87 or 88 um, then you had nominal GDP actually going down. And then, when credit creation went back up in eighty-eight to to ninety, um, then the nominal GDP would go up too. So that's kind of an interesting chart. And during this time period, Japan printed a lot of money, um, and went and actually did a lot of the mergers and acquisitions that were that we know of today. The net long-term cash flows and bank lending to real estate firms. Um, This one, the light curve, the thinner curve is the real estate lending and the thicker curve is the capital flows. So real estate lending starts to increase in the 80's by a lot and so is the capital, the capital flows. And then when the real estate lending starts to abate, the capital flows start to come down. So here's a good example of of uh, going out and purchasing property overseas because of the net flows were going out relative to the lending. And then Chapter Ten is the uh, the prolonging of, uh, how to prolong a recession. So what did they do? They basically, um, they didn't, they extinguished some of the typical monetary policies. You know, if you lower the rate, you, you try to stimulate the economy, but they would extinguish that by controlling the yen, strengthening the yen in the process. Um, not doing the QE that we do today Um, so they wanted to actually create the crisis in a a strange way. So Bank Bank of Japan credit creation um, throughout the 80s was indexed at about anywhere from 25 to about a hundred and then in the 90s it comes back down to from a hundred to zero in the early 90s, during the cri- during their their crash, and then starts to inch back up throughout the the remainder of the decade, um, to about 50 in 1998, and then really climbs up from 1999, and then is very volatile from uh, 99 to 2002 in this data set. So credit creation was somewhat more interesting. at the During, during the 90s, cr- there was an increase in credit creation, but it took to 96 to get back, roughly 96, maybe 95, to get back to where it was in, in 86. And then it really climbed up, and then it came back down really fast. So it was much more volatile throughout the late 90s, early 2000s, and during this time period was when they were asking for, for um, a, the economy to be more open, not so controlled by the MOF. So it's almost as if the Japanese economy was on-off, on-off, on-off with the credit creation to force instability in the market. Okay, in Chapter 11, the Battle of the Yen, they, basically what was happening is the MOF wanted to stimulate the economy and uh, instituted the BOJ to lower rates. Um, the BOJ is wasn't lowering rates, and they were, well, they did lower rates, and then they, what they basically did was instead of letting the yen um, depreciate, it actually was intervening in the market and stabilized the yen from depreciating. So this was happening in the 90s or so. Now, basically, the MOF had at the time uh, currency control. The The BOJ wanted to have currency control and have autonomy from the MOF. So, this chapter is talking about that battle between the MOF and the BOJ um, and how the MOF wanted to create a recovery, but it was somewhat neutralized by the Bank of Japan. And in this chart, um, it shows the actual yen to dollar in the solid line and the uh, thin line, the US to japan 10-year different 10-year bond differential so typically when the differential is positive for a nation money will flow to that nation and strengthen their currency and the money that's flowing from the nation is going to weaken the currency Um, and it's all based on differential capital flows now in this case the data set was showing that it did follow that during the 80s, but in in the 90s, when the differential was starting to go positive for the U.S., the yen should have weakened, and it didn't, it actually strengthened, and that was due to policies by the BOJ. Now, this chart shows the yen USD year-over-year change and credit creation with the Federal Reserve and the BOJ. Now, we do see strong co-movement, strong correlation with those two data sets. So the yen did seem to strengthen during the Federal Reserve and the BOJ um, contractionary policies in terms of credit creation. and And the yen depreciated during times of uh, positive credit creation. Now the data set below is credit creation of the Bank of Japan and the Federal Reserve teasing out who which factor actually was the driving force of this and they weren't equally weighted. So the Federal Reserve actually was somewhat uh, averaged around uh, 40 For um, for most of the nineties. What meanwhile the the um, the BOJ actually was tightening or not or, or, or maintaining a very, very low credit creation. So what's what's interesting with this is, is that during the 90s um the yen was depreciating somewhat i'm sorry during the 90s it was appreciating somewhat and you had very, very low credit creation here um, for for the bulk of this data set within the 90's. Now, in Chapter 12, it's called At the Trigger of the Gun, basically, you know, who created the bubble. The bubble was basically created by the BOJ and its non-productive long growth and the window it was due to window guidance now in this chat in this um, chart we have window guidance and three-month lag actual bank lending and you can see that's very tight so window guidance did maintain throughout the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s. And this chart shows how the total window guidance for the different types of banks and the actual numbers were relatively tight for that data set. So window guidance did continue, even though the, the MOF thought that the BOJ was just adjusting interest rates by going into the bond market. They were uh, tightening credit or expanding credit and going into the market and, and um, affecting the value of the Yen. The Princes of the Yen, basic, this chapter basically covers the, um, the uh, BOJ Governors and Deputy Governors. Now, the BOJ has typically, not always, but typically had a MOF head run the BOJ and then it would go to BOJ the next turn and then it would go, once that tenure ended, then, then, uh, you know, another MOF guy would come in and then it would rotate to a BOJ, but Usually an MOF um, governor at the BOJ, you know, if an MOF guy came to become the governor of the BOJ that the deputy governor was an MOF staff member and they were somewhat designated to isolate them from a, the core group of the BOJ of, who was actually running the, the operations. So every other time you had a BOJ governor and a BOJ deputy governor running and um, every other time you would have a MOF guy that was running the BOJ and a deputy governor that was a BOJ guy. So they were able through the system to kind of like insulate the MOF governors and be able to control monetary policy internally. So that's basically, um, you know, that was really MOF guys that were lifers that, that were really running the show. Chapter 14, the goal of the monetary policy and, you know, basically the goal of monetary policy is to control inflation and to stimulate economic growth and not to overheat. So there's kind of like a dual mandate. Some, some central banks have a single mandate, which is inflation control. But in reality, they have dual mandate because you could have low inflation um, and then the economy doesn't grow enough and then it, and it ends up going in a deflationary situation and they have to go into, a, into a spending mode. Um, but the BOJ, when it was trying to get power away from the MOF, it actually did policies that were recessionary or destructive, uh, building up, you know, a huge asset bubble in the eighties. There was a report called the Maikawa report. That was released on April 7th, 1986, and it was basically recommendations to the Prime Minister on how to do the reconstruction, the economic reconstruction, and pushing for this policy of autonomy for the BOJ. And then, um, but there were infighting within, within the MOF and in the Diet of abrogating power. Uh, there was a lot of corruption and um, so individuals that wanted to have reconstruction thought that the only way to have it was through some sort of crisis. So in uh, on this chart we see that real GDP from the ni- 1958 all the way to 1994 was steadily declining but was in, was relatively high through this, the 60's you know, late 50s through the 60s and part of the 70s and then was somewhat good throughout the the 80s uh, with you know four to six percent growth and then all of a sudden collapsed in the late 90s. Um, this chart here shows the yen and the percentage goods of, manufe- percentage share of manufactured goods in imports. Um, and they're they're basically going up. So as the yen strengthens um, so does the percentage share of manufactured goods and imports. Now, Werner did a study of looking at newspapers and looking at different keywords um, like deregulation, foreign domestic price differentials and they were somewhat stable within the eighties but really started taking off in terms of number of articles using these words uh, in the late night uh, in the early nineties so there was kind of like there was a a media push to get people in tune to the idea that we need re, a, a, like a, uh, a reforming of, of the economic system, an opening of markets, and it seemed as though the media was somewhat used as a propaganda tool to reach the, the agenda of what the BOJ had in mind. Now, in Chapter 16, Inflation, Another Miracle in the Making, I'm sorry, reinflation. reflation, I guess it would be. Um, the BOJ reflated in 1998 and it recovered temporarily. Um, and they switched, that. We, they switched the printing press on in, in March of 1998, creating money at the fastest rate in a quarter century, one day, one day later the new Bank of Japan law became effective and the Bank of Japan had achieved legal independence, perhaps it was celebrating its victory questions. Um, and new money was injected in the economy to make it look good. So what they were really, they, what they were doing was like juice up the economy. Uh, they lost, the laws, the, the, law is instituted and it's in effect and, oh, the economy is starting to re to be repaired and it makes it look like the BOJ actually would, you know, was, was, uh, you know, was the, uh, the creator of this great wealth. and in effect the yen and weaken the yen and they were assuming that there the yen would weaken further some of these the currency model modelers uh, probably overseas and in japan and what happened was is that the the Bank of Japan reduced its credit creation sharply in nineteen ninety eight, and it actually strengthened the yen. So they did a stimulus and then strengthened. Um, so they didn't want. It looked like the BOJ didn't want a weakening of the yen. They wanted a strengthening of the yen. Um, this chart shows how other assets on. Japanese banks were somewhat stable throughout the 80s and early part of the 90s but then became volatile in about 97 through 2002. Of Japan through its restructuring effort you know didn't really prop up banks and they you know there were bankruptcies they didn't do a lot of uh, bailouts or anything like that that we saw during the Lehman crash. And then in chapter 17 it talks about the Asian crisis in central bankers and something similar happened where these other nations in Asia um, went through a, a credit boom a lot of this was non gdp related and asset prices started to to increase and then eventually there was the bust of the cycle and then um, the IMF had to come in and do some bailouts and um Uh, conditionality, you know, happens where you have to restructure your economy, you have to open it up, you have to stop a fixed currency, you have to be free-floating and you, you have free flow of, of uh, capital, um, and foreign investors would come in and start buying foreign assets and it was, it was kind of like a, um, um, an orchestrated, foreign takeover of some of these countries. And we kind of see this going on in Asia, and I think in one of his chapters, he's he's not in Asia, but in Europe, one of his chapters he starts starts to talk about that. Um, In chapter 18, he talks about the power of the princes, Um, and, you know, basically the BOJ now has sovereignty, you know, relative to the MOF, And they're, you know, they're, you know, they, you know, have independence and because they have independence, they, 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 you know, what's the accountability and the transparency that may be needed in a democratic society. Now the Reich Bank was the idea of this, this uh, somewhat controlled economy uh, that Hitler was using that the Japanese decided to institute now fast forward to the European Union and the beginnings of um, abolishing the Deutschmark and instituting the euro and you have these peripheral nations that need a lot of restructuring well you have to almost engineer you get them on board uh, economically using this monetary currency but then to be able to do a full full-fledged fiscal union you almost need a lot of restructuring that's taking place with a lot of these um, socialistic societies well you almost you had for the society restructure you'd have to have this huge crisis similar to what happened in Japan so he's extrapolating the the experience in Japan to how the ECB is not really doing um, targeted GDP productive loans to these different nations within the EU to get them out of their recessionary issues or their deflationary issues and it will lead to further crisis down the road which will allow for the EU to and the IMF and the ECB to erode the the sovereignty of that of that nation, and you know through con- uh, the abolishment of their central bank, these individual countries' central banks they cannot reinflate their way out of their debt they have to because they're tied to the euro they have to do whatever the the um, the ecB thinks is right. So, you know, that, that's a problem. And it's similar to the same dynamics that's going on with, with um, you know, with Japan. You know, how the BOJ instituted a crisis to be able to get the reconstruction that, it, or to be able to get the restructuring that it needed of, of the economy. The ECB and the European Union, is doing something i think similar with the peripheral nations so um that's the that's how the book ends uh talking about the abolishment of the deutsche mark and you know the rising of the euro and how that might be cause for issues um so i'm going to do a lecture maybe another lecture on Japanese Fiscal and Monetary Policies of the 1990s. He has kind of like a a research article uh, dealing with some of the monetary policies and some econometrics that are interesting to cover. And then, then I'll be done with this book. So thank you for listening and have a nice day.